Lake. It is great to be with you today. My name's Mike, one of the pastors on the team, and it really is, it's good to be together and worship. It's good to, to join. Those of you who are joining us online, we're glad about that. And, and um, if you would, grab your notes out of your handout, and you'll see that we are continuing a series called Living the Dream. And last week, if you were here, um, you know that we just began by permission giving. That was the whole point of last week. Just the idea of giving permission to dream and to be aware of your dream and to share your dream. And if you, if you, for some reason you missed last week's message, please go online and, and track with us. Because it is just, it's so great to remember that God, God is the original dreamer. And God's dreams become reality, and you and I are made in his image. And so this is all a part of his plan for what it looks like for us to live and to breathe and, and to, to experience life. It's, it's to understand that we have a dream. And so last week, all I wanted to do was I wanted to give permission for you to dream and be aware of your dreams. And I didn't even care what it was. If your dream was to pass out in a diabetic coma on a mound of candy corn, that's okay with me. Right? Just you dream and, and then be willing to be aware of your dream and then share your dream on the chalkboard in the hallway. Many of you have done that. And if you haven't seen that area, please spend some time seeing how the church family is dreaming and being aware of their dreams, processing and sharing their dream. And, and take some time. If you haven't written yours out, go ahead and do that today. But that's the whole point of this idea on the front end of the thing is just have permission to dream. But today you can see by your notes that the message is, is titled Broken Dreams. And so the, the question then comes up, well, listen, if, if God is so interested in allowing me to be aware of my dream and, and maybe even begin to pursue my dream, why is it that we live in a world where there are so many broken dreams? Why is it that we see in our world reality and pessimism are separated by the thinnest of knife hairs? That's actually a mixed metaphor, isn't it? Knife hairs. I don't think uh, they have hairs. But anyway, knife edge. That's what I meant. And the idea is um, you just recognize that, that there's a reality, right, of, of living in this fallen world and there's all kinds of brokenness and it's broken out there and it's broken in here and there's all kinds of, of stuff that we end up wrestling with when it comes to understanding and pursuing our dreams. And so what I want to do is sort of the, the, the big picture idea, right, the, the, the big message that I want you to get today is that God can redeem and repair broken dreams. He can redeem and he can repair broken dreams. He can replant and plant new. He can open up new vistas of hope. He can draw good out and make joy reborn. And, and he can make our original dreams come true in new and fun and fresh ways. In ways we never could have understood. And I just say all this because after last week's message of permission to dream, a dear brother came up to me and said, Mike, all my dreams are broken. And so we spent some time just talking and, and praying together. 
But I have a feeling that in a room this size, in a church this size, that there are many as we walk the road, that that might be the season that we're in. And we're in desperate need of God to redeem. We're in desperate need of God to repair. We're in desperate need of God to replant a dream that we are aware of within us. And again, remember what dreams are. It's not just a passing fancy, okay? The idea of dreams is that it's this glorious haunting. It's the deep desire of our heart. It's the yearning we return to again and again and again. It's this divine haunting that we can't get away from. Those are the dreams that we're talking about like fire in our bones, right? And so what I want to do on the front end is I want to show you a video. Many of you have already seen this video, but it's a video about a person who may have been tempted to give up on their dreams. But in the process of sharing a message of what it looks like to have broken dreams, she ends up living hers out. So go ahead and watch this video. My name is Susan Boyle. I'm nearly 48, currently unemployed but still looking. And I'm going to sing for you on Britain's Got Talent today. That's nervous. Yeah, sure, no. Yeah, well, that's, that's not surprising, but you're not trying. I've got, got fighting, would you know? At the moment, I live in Mullen with my cat called Pebbles. But I've never been married. Never been kissed. Oh, shame. <laughs> but it's not an advert. <laughs> and have you done this for many a year? Since I was 12. Since you're 12? I've always wanted to perform in front of a large audience. I'm going to make that audience rock. Hi, what's your name, darling? My name is Susan Boyle. And how old are you, Susan? I am 47. <laughs> OK, what's the dream? I, I'm trying to be a professional singer. And why hasn't it worked out so far, Susan? I've never been given the chance before, but here's hoping it'll change. OK, and who would you like to be as successful as? Elaine Page. Elaine Page. Like what are you going to sing tonight? I'm going to sing I Dreamed a Dream from the Miserables. OK. Big song. <laughs> I dreamed a dream in time gone by
without a doubt, that was the biggest surprise I have had in three years on this show. When you stood there with that cheeky grin and said, I, I want to be like Elaine Page, everyone was laughing at you. No one is laughing now. That was stunning. An incredible performance. I know that everybody was against you. I honestly think that we were all being very cynical and I think that's the biggest wake-up call ever. And I just want to say that it was a complete privilege listening to that. It was inspirational. I knew the minute you walked out... Oh, Simon! ..on that stage that we were going to hear something extraordinary and I was right. <laughs> Did you not, uh, didn't you just cheer her on in the midst of that? Like, can we just give it up for Susan, wherever you are, right? Like, it's so great. And there's something within us that just comes alive when we see somebody else stepping into the stride of their dream. And for her whole life, she had this dream that, that she could sing. And, and for her whole life, by the way, she ended up singing in the church choir. You could do that, Right. And so she walked this road of pursuing her dream. And it's just such a beautiful thing to see someone come into the fullness. At 47 years old, with the world's largest unibrow, she becomes, right, an internet sensation. Her, her video on, the, on YouTube has been seen over 120 million times. It's phenomenal to see this. And, and, and our hearts come alive when we witness something like that. And, and the reason is because of Scripture. You see what it says on your notes. This is in Proverbs thirteen twelve. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. A dream fulfilled is a beautiful thing. A dream fulfilled gives life and nourishment. Right? It's, it gives glory to God. Why? Because he is the original dreamer and we're made in his image. And so when dreams become reality, we are in effect glorifying God. This is the God who said to David, you ask for the nations and I will give them to you. It's the same God who said to Solomon, ask whatever you want and it'll be yours. It's the same God in Jesus, Jesus who tells his disciples, you and I, whatever you ask in my name of the Father, he will give to you, right? This permission that we have to dream. And so we just recognize that, that God receives glory when he fulfills the dreams that he has planted within us. And there's something so beautiful and positive and powerful about allowing ourselves to dream and participating in those dreams. And, and it's, it's a tree of life, the scripture says, that we enjoy and that we bring to others when we fulfill these dreams. We see God fulfill them in our lives. Which is why, by the way, when our dreams become broken, it is such a tragic reality. It's, it's why it hurts so much and it is so hard and it is such a burden. It's so weighty and there's all sorts of grief associated when we realize that our dreams are being dashed against the rocks, when they're dying, when they're broken dreams. And so I want to talk about some of the things that surround why that might be. And, and if that's your experience, why perhaps you're having that experience. But what I want to say on the front end is blame is not at all a helpful emotion. 
So as a part of being mere mortal, as a part of being human, we have this limited capacity to understand. And what we want to do is we want to blame somebody else. We want to blame something else. We want to blame some deity. And you need to understand that blame is, is not a part. We want to understand something, but, but to, to blame other people when our dreams don't become reality, that's, that's not the right road for us to walk. It's not helpful, and it's not healthy. So let's jump into this thing, and we'll take a look at, at, at some of the things that are realities when it comes to our dreams. The first one there is just as some dreams have a use-by date. In other words, you just like kind of a carton of milk. You need to understand that some dreams it, it, during a certain season of your life, they're wonderful and delicious. But if you keep them past that, they spoil, right? They curdle in your coffee. And so you just need to recognize that some of our dreams have a use by date. They're just easier to do when you're young. I'm 42 years old now, and there are some dreams that I have to let go of. For example, my dream of playing in the NFL. Or my dream of being an astronaut. Or my dream of dancing for Chippendales. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. You can keep that dream for a long time. Um, but you know what I'm talking about. The idea that, that there are just some dreams. Like, like let's say you have a dream of being a penniless writer. Or a penniless uh, actor. Or a penniless uh, traveler. Uh, these kind of things. They're, they're, they're fine and wonderful dreams. But... But they're much easier to do when you're sort of kind of young in your life and you're just at a you know, high school or just in, at a college or, or you're just exploring life as a 20-something. Like those are the seasons when those kinds of dreams should be encouraged. But if you're, um, you know, married and you've got kiddos and you've got a mortgage and you've got all these responsibilities and you're becoming established in your life, then just taking off for 24 months and traveling around the world, It's not an option for you. Does that make sense? Like you just recognize, oh, okay, you know what? That dream, it had a use by date. And since I made other choices, that one, I've got to rethink that one. I've got to offer it to God and let him replant it as something else. Does that make sense? And so you just recognize there are some dreams in our life that they really do. They have a use by date. Uh, The next uh, truth here is that we recognize that God interrupts some dreams. That he has that prerogative. And, and we actually offer that to God because we know he is all wise and all good. And, and so we offer him our dreams. God, um, we're going to offer this dream to you. And if you open the door for it, we're going to take it as a sign that you want us to go this direction. Uh, just out of curiosity, raise your hand if you're familiar with that phrase. Uh, if God does something, I'll take it as a sign he wants me to go that direction. Many of you, okay. Well, I, uh, I, that's fine. I think that's okay for us to do that. God does, uh, he is involved in our life, active and in, in participating with us. And so I think that's fine. I saw a text exchange from a couple of our students in student ministry last week. I thought this was funny. Somebody's taking it as a sign. He says, if I get enough financial aid, I'll see it as a sign from God to seriously consider Al-Qaeda. And then he, he texts back, well, that's awkward. I meant Azusa. Okay. <laughs> That has to be the world's worst autocorrect, right? <laughs> I don't think you need to take that as a sign from God. Like, he's not uh, opening that door for you. Okay, so. But, but what, you, what you need to understand is that it, it is okay to offer God that opportunity with your dreams. God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer this dream to you. And if the door opens, I'll take it as a sign. That's what you want for me. And you can do that because God is a good dad. And he loves you. 
And the phrase that you might want to write down and wrestle with is this phrase that God will not give you a blessing that will destroy you. God will not give you a blessing that will destroy you. I read a comic strip years ago, Calvin and Hobbes. I love Calvin and Hobbes. He's that little, you know, eight-year-old boy. He goes to his dad and says, Dad, where do we keep our chainsaws? And his dad says, we don't have any chainsaws. And Calvin says, none? His dad says, not a one. And then Calvin says, how am I ever going to learn to juggle? And, uh, and it's just, it, it, funny. I thought it was funnier when I read it. But anyway, the idea is that um, his dad is a good dad, and he's not going to give his son a chainsaw because it's, it's that's a powerful and dangerous tool. You know, my son Doozy is eight years old, and if he came and asked me for a chainsaw, I wouldn't give it to him, right? I, I, I'm a, not because I'm a bad dad, because I'm a good dad. And I don't trust his muscles right now, and I don't trust his motives, right? That's not a good way to trim your toenails, buddy. You know, there's a better way to go. Um, but there will be a day in Doozy's life when a chainsaw would be a perfectly appropriate gift for him, right? Like if he's in some kind of zombie apocalypse or living in Duval. Yeah, I, I like just several, <laughs> several opportunities, right, where that would be a good thing. And, and you just recognize that God is a good father who loves his children so much that he will not give you the blessing that will destroy you. And so God has, he has all the prerogative to put a pause on our dreams. He has all, he has all, uh, I mean, in his wisdom and in his grace, he can say, no, not yet. Or he can say, let me interrupt that because there's a better dream for you. It's like um, a young uh, corporate executive climbing the ladder. His goal, his dream in his life was to be the youngest vice president in his company ever. So he was given all of his time and all of his energy and all of everything he had. He was given it to his career. Meanwhile, his young wife and his family are suffering. And in a scenario like that, I can imagine that God feels absolute freedom to put a pause on his dream. So that he can begin to dream a better dream. A dream that is more in line with kingdom priority. And so you just recognize that, 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 that there's a use-by date, right, for some of our dreams, that God has freedom to interrupt our dreams. The next truth on your outline there is says uh, we can default on some dreams by the choices that we make. And we can. Uh, sometimes the choices that we make, the, the, um, the directional choices or the moral choices, the, the choices um, that, that we make that are selfish and sinful, that are outside of God's best, sometimes those choices put a default in our dreams. And, and the scripture kind of warns us of this reality. It says in Proverbs thirteen nineteen, it's pleasant to see dreams come true, but fools refuse to turn from evil to attain them. And so it's, it's true. I mean, and in fact, what I would tell you is, is I think this is the primary reason why God hates sin. You know, some of you, you still think that God hates sin because he's a killjoy. He doesn't want you to have any fun. That's just wrong. The reason why God hates sin is because he knows sin is the number one dream thief in the entire world. And you might want to write that down. I'm a little impressed that I came up with that. Okay. Sin is a dream thief. And God hates sin because he doesn't want your dreams to be dashed or broken. And so he hates it in all of its forms. Because he knows you're the one who gets wounded first and most. And then you wound others. 
with your choices. And then the dreams that you dreamed at one point in your life are no longer available to you because of the choices that you've made. An example, in, when I was in college, I had a buddy named Alex, and Alex really wanted to be in the CIA. It was a dream of his, and he actually fulfilled it with his life. But because of the sort of the process that the CIA goes through in order to hire certain people, he knew that there were, there were behaviors that he could not engage in in college because if he did so, it would default his dream to be in the CIA. So even though he was on the lacrosse team and he had all these buddies doing all these kind of things in the fraternities and whatnot, he, he constantly and consistently chose to opt out of activities in college so that he would not default on the dream that he had for his life. So you just think about that. What does that look like in your life? And and can you see the reality? Can you see this is why God hates sin and why he doesn't want us to make some of these choices, right? And, And so you can think about relational choices that we end up tying ourselves into that are not healthy or they're burdensome or they're manipulative or they're outside of God's best. Or you can think of relational choice where you choose to be proud in a relationship and you end up pushing the other person away and now that relationship is broken and the dream you had for it is gone. You can think of financial choices that we make in a moment, that we make in a season of indiscretion, but that take us years and years and years to undo. And so maybe we had these dreams that allowed us to be financially free, but because of our choices, we have to walk this road for a while. You could think about moral choices that we end up making that suddenly become a burden of shame that we end up shouldering and it weighs us down and it burdens us and God designs us to soar in our dreams and yet we can't soar because we are so heavy laden. I know some people who have a dream of being a parent, but because of addiction to substance, the child in their life gets taken away from them and... I can't think of anything more painful than for a parent to have a child removed from their home. I can think of a dream that children have, that they would be able to grow up in a stable environment where both parents are loving one another and providing that environment. And yet because of selfishness and sin and, and pride, we see that so often the relationship between spouses is broken and it not only breaks a dream, it breaks a home, breaks a marriage and these things are not God's best. But I, just, I, I say all these things so that you can see the scripture warns us that, that we're to turn from our sins so that we can pursue our dreams. That God hates sin, not because he doesn't want you to have any fun. No, he hates sin because he knows it's a dream thief. And he wants your dreams to be intact. He, he does not want you to default on your dreams. And then, of course, this next truth is also true, and it's difficult but important for us to embrace and wrestle with. And it's the reality that circumstances in a fallen world can dash our dreams, that we live in a fallen world. I've, I've talked before about how we are in the meantime right now. It's, it's the meantime before the kingdom of heaven crashes into earth. This is the meantime. It's very mean. And there are circumstances that we end up walking through that are dark and that are hurtful and that break dreams. And, and to share their story, I want to invite a dear friend uh, of Jody and mine. It's a couple, Ben and Arlene Thomas. And they've walked a really difficult road, and, and I've asked them if they'd be willing to come and share with you, Overlake. So, Overlake, would you please give my friends Ben and Arlene a warm welcome this morning? Thank you. Guys. 
And as they're getting situated, I do just um, want to let you know that we both, all three, agree that um, U2 is on God's iPod. And so there's, a, um, there's a, 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 a true heart connection between the three of us on this regard. So uh, as we get into this, I just want to ask you, Ben Arlene, would you be willing to share with us just a little bit about um, the season that you walked through? Um, yeah, for most people that would see us walking around, we'd look like a pretty normal family. Um, we've been married 13 years, and we have, um, you would see us with um, two beautiful little girls. Um, but most people don't know that we, um, a little over eight years ago, we had a son who passed away suddenly and unexpectedly um, as a result of sudden infant death syndrome. So when we first got married, we had a lot of dreams for our lives. We had things kind of charted out. We knew that we wanted a family. We knew the timing that would work well for us. Um, So five years into marriage and after we were both done with graduate school, we decided to start a family. And right away we got pregnant with Micah. And after a smooth pregnancy, we we welcomed a healthy little boy into our family. So um, it was on our uh, first day home at the hospital. It was three days after Micah had been um, born. And um, he passed away suddenly during the night. And um, it was definitely a moment that changed our lives forever. Um, So at the time when Micah passed away, I think that we recognized a lot of dreams. But we also, um, as we've continued to live out these following eight years, we've recognized there's more dreams that that we had. And so we continue to to wrestle with that. So even when we take our daughter to school and we see boys who are eight years old and they're playing and um, or we drive by a baseball field and watch Little League going on during the summer, um, we continue to feel that, feel that pain. Yeah. Would you guys um, describe sort of the season that you did walk through after Micah's death? What were the days and the months uh, like for you both after that experience? Yeah, I think when we reflect back on, on those days, they were um, a lot of dark days. It was really excruciating. Um, we were coping with something that we hadn't imagined, and I, and I don't know, it's, I don't think any parent thinks about the possibility of that happening. Um, so we uh, ended up wrestling or dealing with things, especially initially, that um, it was a holiday season. It was right after Thanksgiving. And so instead of introducing Micah to our family and to our friends, we had to plan a memorial service. And instead of um, getting ready for the holidays and celebrating the holidays, we were... Um, thinking about what to do with his nursery. So um, a a lot of those days, I think we look back and think it was really about surviving and making it through and just going day by day. As time went on, you know, weeks and months, we, in different ways, we had to deal with the reality of his loss. And that cliched statement of there are no guarantees in life, um, it never held so much meaning for me. Um, And... At the beginning, people wanted us to start dreaming again um, pretty quickly, and it felt like we just weren't ready for that. We needed a lot of time to just be able to sit in our grief and um, mourn what we'd lost. And so the, the idea of dreaming was just, for a while, seemed impossible. Yeah. How, how that experience obviously was earth-shattering and life-changing, how would you say that uh, that experience has changed the way that you view life, the way that you view dreams? Um. Well, 
when I think of even the way that, um, like when I was pregnant with my daughter, Macy, um, I think that's one really good example of how, how much it changed us. And um, when most women, when most families get two lines on a pregnancy test, you it catapults the planner in you. And um, when I was pregnant with her, I... I just took every day at a time. I, I couldn't. I couldn't see far into the future, and I. But with that, I had so much gratitude for every day. Um, I, I knew that I wasn't promised a long life with her, so I just was really grateful for every day. And right. um, I never knew how to answer the questions that people would have of, um, you know, what kind of childbirth are you thinking about, or where are you registered, or. Um, who is her pediatrician going to be? Because I just couldn't plan that far. So even a couple weeks before we gave birth, um, we hadn't bought anything. So I remember just um, probably a couple weeks before we had her going to the store and just buying the essentials. And just the idea that buying a five-pack of onesies felt like a new commitment to her and a commitment to this dream that, um, that I'd faith that I would have with her. Um, yeah, another aspect was definitely our faith, and um, I think we went about that in different way, ways a little bit, but for me, I definitely had a lot of anger with God initially, um, um, anger at cliches, um, I had doubts with God, um, really wrestling with my faith and an uncertainty about continuing on a faith journey. Um, as, as kind of time passed, there were things that started to help me Go, still choose faith, and mm-hmm. some of those were. Um, I found that it was okay. It was okay for me to doubt and, and be upset. And I was re- I read a lot in the Psalms of Lament and Lamentations and Ecclesiastes, and just recognizing that that it was okay. Right. Um, having people come around and, like we've mentioned, kind of sitting with us through our grief. And for me, that was the way that I saw that God was present. So, not necessarily. Um, some kind of spiritual experience, but more so with people just being there and being okay that um, we didn't have the answers. Um, also starting to recognize some of the pain that other people experience. So kind of where I got to was a place of recognizing that God is very mysterious and I don't have all the answers and to some extent being okay with that. Right. So I, I, we definitely feel like we're just different people. We're more empathetic. We want our girls to understand that um, compassion leads to action. Um, Arlene's a therapist, and she focuses on grief and loss. So we feel like there's a lot of ways this experience has, has changed us and directed us. Um, but it, it very much is still a paradox because we can recognize those good things that have come out of it. But if we if we could, we would give up all of that in a second if we could go back and undo that experience. Sure, and have Micah with you. Absolutely, that's right. Arlene, you had talked to me about how even your prayer life has changed since then. Do you want to share that as well? Yeah, I, I, this experience just changed the way I even think about prayer. And in the past, I think for me, prayer in large part was about requests and things to ask for. Um, and that, you know, when the most desperate prayer I have ever prayed um, seemed to have gone unanswered, I was crushed. And I, for a long time, I just couldn't pray. I didn't know how. Um, I just didn't have the energy and I felt like, what's the point of it? Um, and I think that there was a verse that was helpful for me and it comes out of Romans and it says that, um, 
In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And I think for me, especially during those really dark times when I maybe wanted to connect with God, but I just didn't know how, it was um, comforting to know that somebody was interceding for me. Right. Absolutely. Well, you guys, thank you for sharing that. And we recognize what a dark season it is when you're walking a road of broken dreams, for sure. Um, but I wonder, would you introduce your two girls to us right now? Absolutely, yeah. So uh, our daughters are six and four now. This is Macy. She's in kindergarten. This is a picture from her first day at school. And uh, she wants to be president of the United States. So she's our achiever. Goal-oriented. Absolutely. That's right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And then Madeline is four years old. And she, uh, she's hedging her bets. So she has astronaut, vet, veterinarian, and superhero on her list. Yeah. Um, she might be able to do those simultaneously. Yeah, actually. maybe. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. I think what, so what we, when we think about our dreams for them, we want to support them and, and any goals that they have. Um, right. But we, um, we have turned to uh, Micah 6 8 a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a verse when God is calling the Israelites to uh, act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. And it was actually a verse that we had identified for our son. And so it has extra meaning for our family. Wow. And we, our, our dream for them is that they live that out and, and they understand some of the brokenness around them, but yeah. helping to bring, be an active part of bringing God's story and God's kingdom to yeah. the people around them. That's great. Friends, can we thank Ben and Arlene for sharing with us this morning? Yes, thank you. So, you know, I was listening to them share, and I just wonder maybe if, if there's a place in your life where you're available, where you're ready, maybe, to offer God your broken dreams, that, that you could um, you just recognize, um, I don't know what to do with this dream. It looks like there's no way uh, of fulfillment in this lifetime, and so God, I just offer it to you, and And even if you don't think that you're ready to trust God with that dream, maybe the prayer that you pray is, God, make me ready to trust you. That as I offer this to you, that I I would begin to believe that you do redeem broken dreams, you do repair broken dreams, you do restore broken dreams, that you have the ability to replant a dream in my heart. So maybe maybe that's where you are today, and I just would encourage you in that. What I want to do with the remainder of our time together is I want to tell you a story. It's found in scripture about a man named Joseph. And Joseph had dreams and, and God had planted some dreams in Joseph's life. And if you were with us last week, you know we started talking about a man named Jacob and the dreams that God had planted within him. And, and Jacob is Joseph's father. And so here's Joseph, and he's got some dreams, and, and you'll see sort of how it, it played out in his life. Many of you are familiar with the story. It's found in Genesis toward the end. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 37 and just read a few verses of how the dream was birthed in his life and then how God um, walked him along the road of it being broken and then God repairing and redeeming and restoring it. So it starts in uh, verse 3 in chapter 37. And it says, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children. Can we just stop right there? That's unhealthy, just so you know. Um, if your dad loved your kids the same, if your mom loved your kids the same, like don't have favorites. And even if you do have favorites, don't tell them that you have favorites. Like the idea is, no, no. Okay, dad, we get that you love Joseph, but the fact that it's so clearly identified in scripture thousands of years later, this was a big 
disfavoritism kind of a deal. So Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. Some of your translations say a coat of many colors, right? And so it's not just that Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. He actually gives him a beautiful, ornate robe to declare, you're my favorite, okay? Not healthy family dynamic here. Verse 4, but his brothers hated Joseph. Really? Oh, wow. Uh, Even the best brothers hate your brother, you know, at some point, uh, but it's pretty easy to hate Joseph because dad loves him most. So they hate Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. One night, Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in a field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundle stood up, and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. I can't imagine why his brothers hated him in this moment. His brothers responded, so you think you'll be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? They hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Soon Joseph had another dream, and again he told his brothers about it. You would have thought that he would have learned the first time. But no, uh, let's keep talking about these dreams I keep having. Listen, I have had another dream, he said. The sun, moon, and eleven stars bowed low before me. This time he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers, but his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. Okay, and so this begins the story of Joseph. Now, many of you know this story, and so I'm going to paraphrase. If, if you would, over the next couple of days, read through the remainder of Genesis so you see how the story plays itself out of Joseph's dreams. But, but, but you get this setup, right? Joseph's got these brothers, they hate him, and, and probably with fairly substantial reason. And, and Joseph, you would say he has very low emotional intelligence because he just can't keep these dreams to himself. Just innocently, really? You don't want to hear about this dream I have where you all serve me? It's just a crazy dream. And, uh, and no, they didn't want to hear it. And so what happens is Joseph goes out to check on them in the fields far from home, and they decide they're going to have their revenge on him. So they beat him up, and they tear his robe. They dip it in blood. They tell dad that he's been eaten by a wild animal, and they throw Joseph down into an empty well. And they're trying to decide what to do with him. They want to kill him. But then a caravan comes by of slave traders, traffickers. Over like we come against this. But in Genesis, it was uh, part of their daily reality as well. And so a, a caravan comes by and the brothers decide, we'll sell Joseph to these slave traders. And they do. And so Joseph is sold into slavery and he's carted off into a foreign nation down into Egypt and... At this point, he's got to be thinking, God, what is going on with these dreams that you've given me? There's no way they're going to come in to fulfillment. There's just no way. I'm a slave. He ends up being sold to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar works in Pharaoh's household and as a captain of the guard. And Potiphar is a wealthy man with a lot of estate. And he puts Joseph to work as his slave. And, And Joseph, it says, has favor from the Lord. And so Joseph, even though he's a slave, he begins to be promoted as a slave, as a servant of the house. And pretty soon Joseph becomes the one who's in charge of the entire estate. Only Potiphar is above him in terms of managing the estate. 
And so, if you will, Joseph, even though his dreams are not becoming reality, he realizes he's first slave. Well, it is interesting because in his household, he was first son, not the oldest, but the favorite. And now here he is in a, a slave household, but he's, he's, he's the first slave, first son to first slave. And um, Potiphar loved him. He valued him greatly. And so did Potiphar's wife. And that's a problem because Potiphar's wife had the hots for this, uh, this servant named Joseph. He, she found him attractive and that his shoulders were broad and his face was comely. And, and she felt like she wanted him. She, she actually threw herself at him. And the, the Hebrew translation of Potiphar's wife is actually the world's first cougar. Uh, I'm a little bit unsure about that, but I'm, I, I think that's what it means. And So she throws herself at Joseph again and again and again, and he rebuffs her advances. But one day they're alone in the home together, and she grabs him and says, you need to come sleep with me, and Joseph runs. He flees the scene, but she holds on to his coat. And so when her husband comes home, she, feeling jilted, she says that Joseph tried to rape her. And as proof, she has his coat here, And so Joseph gets thrown in jail. Having done nothing wrong, he's thrown into a well, beaten by his brothers, and sold into slavery. Having done nothing wrong, he's now cast into an Egyptian prison. At some point in this, you have to think that Joseph was close to despair. The beginning of chapter 41 in Genesis says these words, After two full years of being in prison. You have to think that at some point, Joseph is thinking, My dreams are broken. They're dashed to the ground. They're absolutely dead and gone. But what is interesting is just like in Joseph's household, he was the favored son. And just like in Potiphar's household, he was the favored servant. Here in the prison, he receives God's favor. And he begins to pick up tasks that the warden gives him. And he excels at those tasks. And he serves the warden faithfully. So pretty soon, only the warden is above him. And Joseph is in charge of the entire prison system. Interesting. Now he's first prisoner, right? First son, first slave, now he's first prisoner. And all of this was because in the fastest promotional track in the history of the universe, God was going to take him from first prisoner to first in command of Egypt. And if you know the story, you know that's exactly what happened, that Joseph ends up serving Pharaoh, and Pharaoh promotes him. Not only releases him from prison, but promotes him to be the right hand of over the most powerful nation on earth at the time. And under Joseph's leadership, Egypt gets ready for a famine that's about to come. And so they stockpile food. And not only do they survive the the famine, they thrive through it. And these other nations begin to come to Egypt and bow down before Joseph and ask if he would give them food from their surplus, which of course he does. And then Joseph's brothers come and his father, and they end up bowing down before Joseph. They don't recognize him. How could they? They haven't seen him in years. When they last saw him, he was beaten to a pulp and sold into slavery. They had no idea that the person that they bowed down before was actually their brother who had a dream that they would bow down before him. Now, what I want you to see about this is the incredible way that God was able to redeem and restore and replant and repair the dream that Joseph had. Regardless of what circumstance, in fact, even 
because of those circumstances, God was moving Joseph into the place where his dream would be fulfilled. Nobody would have charted the connection between Joseph and Jacob's household and being at the right hand of Pharaoh. Nobody could have done it quicker than God. But at any point in the story, if Joseph would have decided, this is the end of my dream. This is the end. It's absolutely destroyed here. This is when it's absolutely broken. If he had called it quits at any point in the story, he would have called it quits too early. Because God was at work behind the scenes. And God was stewarding Joseph to the place where he was ready to step into that fulfillment. And and God was at work behind the circumstances and through the circumstances. And the same is true in your life. I don't know where you are. I don't know where you are in that journey. But if you're ready to conclude that your dreams are broken and that they're dashed to bits and that they're totally destroyed, you need to realize that you're still in the middle of your story. And that God is still over it all and he has the ability to redeem and repair your dreams. And I want to tell you there's one other fact that we must remember as mere mortals in a fallen world. And it's the reality that God's timetable is infinitely and eternally different than ours. We must remember that God's time, that he sees time absolutely different than we see it. And so we, this is absolutely essential for us as we live lives as finite beings with finite understanding in a finite length of time here on earth. You need to realize that God is the Lord of both the living and the dead. And that this lifetime is not the final story, even though it's the final story that we can see and experience in this lifetime. We need to remember that the great hope of our faith, the dream that is more powerful than any dream, is that not only do we enjoy the promise and the presence of God in this lifetime, but in the one to come. And that's why the scriptures say, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's why Augustine says this, and it's absolutely true. He says, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And so when we find our rest in him and when we delight ourselves in him, and that's our primary posture of experiencing life in that faith intimacy, he will give us himself and our broken dreams can find contentment in him. And the last thing I want to say about this, I want to wrap up right now. The last thing I want to say is I was talking to Pastor Josh this week about dreams and And he let me know something that I think is probably true in many of our lives. He said, Mike, a dream that I held on to for years wasn't a dream that God was giving me, but it was a burden that culture was placing on me. He said, Mike, when you speak to Overlake about dreams, you need to give them permission not only to dream God's dreams for their life, but to release dreams that aren't his best. And so again, I don't know where you are this morning. I don't know if you're a season where your dreams are broken and you feel like they're just, they're dashed to bits. I want to invite you to offer them to God and and invite him to repair and redeem those dreams. Or maybe you're in need of being freed from a dream that God had no intention of you ever dreaming. Some burden that you're carrying along 
and it's a weighty thing. I just want to ask you, would you be willing to release your dream to God and let him do the redemption and the the replanting of a new dream in your heart today? Why don't we ask him to do that right now? Let's pray together. And we pray saying, Lord Jesus, we recognize how intimately you're involved in our lives. That you are the one who... Um, you, you, you caught the Father's dream of salvation. You caught the Father's dream of redemption and you came to earth and you lived it out perfectly. You fulfilled the Father's dream. And for that, we are absolutely and eternally grateful. In fact, Lord, if there are any here who have never said yes to the gift that you offer in salvation, my prayer is that today they would step across the line, place their trust and their faith in you. But Jesus, we've been talking about dreams this morning, and so what we want to do is we want to be humble enough and we want to be authentic enough to offer you our dreams. The dreams that are broken, we offer to you. We ask that you would do redemption work in them. The dreams that feel like a burden today, we offer them to you. We ask that you would bring release. Lord Jesus, the dreams that we have that we hold dearly to, they're not broken and we don't feel that they're a burden. We're still excited and we have energy and life as we pursue them. Lord, we offer them to you as well. We ask that you'd feel freedom to sculpt our dreams, to turn them into something that does bring you glory, that leads us into our best. Jesus, we pray all these things knowing that you're the one who plants dreams in our hearts. So we ask that you would make us aware of those dreams. Allow us to walk with you into their fulfillment. We pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.